What a joy it is to be together once again to open the Word of God as His people and to look into it to understand who God is by what He says. I was reminded as we were singing that song, the words of the Apostle Paul to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4, where he exhorts young Timothy to preach the Word, to be ready in season and out of season, no matter what's coming, no matter what clouds are on the horizon, no matter what is happening, Timothy, you just simply preach the Word. You, you speak what is truth, you speak the words of God, and allow the words of God to do what God designed them to do. Whether that be condemnation upon those who might reject the Word of God, or whether that be restoration that might be salvation upon the soul that God has drawn to Himself and embraces the truth of Jesus Christ. And so that's what we do here each and every Lord's Day. We preach the Word. We open the Bible. We ask you to open your Bible because this is the most cherished thing that we have in all of life, the Word of God, and we open the Bible together to hear from God. So here we are this morning, and we are taking our Bibles together, I trust, and opening them to our study of the Gospel of Luke. The Gospel of Luke. This morning we find ourselves once again beginning in Luke's Gospel, and we are beginning in chapter 8. Chapter 8. And I want us to just look at these first three verses of chapter 8. I was in a dilemma this week as I was studying because oftentimes we come to the Scriptures and we look at the Scriptures, particularly when it comes to the Gospels, and we we see these grand sections of the Gospels that unfold, that Jesus Christ is doing miraculous deeds and giving ministry words to people and sharing parables with the people, and those encompass large sections. But we have these sections like we're finding ourselves in this morning here in chapter 8, where they're transitional. They're parts of the text that are given to us to to allow movement to happen in one sense in the narrative, and yet I'm reminded of the words of Paul again in 2 Timothy chapter 3, that all Scripture is God-breathed, and all of it is profitable for our teaching and for our understanding. And so we, we cannot just simply run over these sections and not spend our time there. And so while I had hoped in one sense to go to that larger section that begins in verse 4 that is very familiar to us on the parable of the sowers, we cannot go there without going through verses 1 to 3. And so I want to spend our time this morning here in just these first three verses. And I think it flows within the context of the overall reality of what Jesus Christ has just been doing with the people in chapter 7. Because I want us to see this morning the children of wisdom living as they ought to live. The children of wisdom living as as they ought to live. That should be an exhortation to all of us, just at the very beginning with those words, that the children of wisdom are the children of God, those who have been called by God, those who have been saved by Jesus Christ, those who have had their sins forgiven, those who, in the words of chapter 7, love much, because they have been forgiven much. 
These are the children of wisdom living as they ought to live. Let me just read these verses for us, and then we can ask God's blessing upon our time. Chapter 8 begins this way. Soon afterwards, he began going around from one city and village to another, proclaiming and preaching the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and sicknesses. Mary, who was called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Susa, Herod's steward, and Susanna, and many others who were contributing to their support out of their private means. There's a section that I want us to cover this morning. It seems rather generic. It seems rather spiritually unhelpful on the surface, and yet I hope that you will understand as we're done that there is much here for us to learn. And so let's bow in a word of prayer and just offer our time to the Lord. Father, we thank you again for this moment, this time where we can open your word together and we can study what it says. Lord, change our hearts, mend our lives by the power of your Spirit as we interact with your truth, as we take it in and allow it to sink deep within us. May we be the people that you have called us to be, all to your glory, of course, not to our praise at all. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. The longer I'm in ministry as a pastor and the more I have the opportunity to lead people, the more I am dumbfounded by the confusion within a larger scope of evangelicalism as to what are the proving characteristics of genuine faith. seems rather strange to me that with the Scriptures and with the Holy Spirit within us that so many within evangelicalism are confused as to what it means to be a Christian or at least what a Christian looks like in their outworking and how they live. It seems to me that so many within the larger evangelical church cannot seem to definitively say what a Christian is to be like in their living. Either they're either afraid to say it because it may contradict how they live in themselves, or they're afraid to say it because it might challenge them in their thinking as to so many in their minds that they know who have professed faith in Jesus but aren't living as if the Bible, or as the Bible declares, or they're just simply ignorant altogether because they're biblically illiterate as to what a Christian actually is. But whatever the case, there seems to be this confusion going on. I received a letter recently in which the person who was writing it to me was trying to at least graciously inform me that what I had said about the spiritual condition of, of an individual couldn't possibly be accurate about that individual because that person at least was touted to be by others as a good person, someone who lived a good life, someone who did living, carried out their life in such a way that others would characterize them as a good person, that they were selfless in their kindness for others. And this gracious person went along to say that that alone proved that they were 
quite possibly saved. As I read that, I grieved in my heart because even though this person had had who had wrote the letter had extended years within evangelicalism, numerous decades by their own testimony and the influence of their life within evangelicalism, they were, as I read it, and in my own thoughts about the Word of God, they were somewhere damningly confused about what a Christian is and what they are to be like in their own life. And all of this came to my mind this week as I was studying for our time this morning here in Luke chapter 8. Each time, each time I come to our study of Luke, my mind continually is thrust back to Theophilus. I've mentioned him several times in our study. I will mention him over the next months as we continue in our study. We know him. He is the friend of Luke, the one to whom Luke is writing. And he's writing to him because... He wants him to know. It says in chapter 1, verse 4, so that you and us through him, us through the Apostle Paul, us or through Luke, us through the Holy Spirit's uh, superintending guidance of Luke to put these facts down as he's writing to Theophilus that we might know the exact truth of the things that we have been taught and instructed about. Luke is writing to Theophilus. That's the purpose for which Luke is putting down all of these words. Theophilus had religious upbringing. Theophilus was taught about the things of God. He had heard all of the history of how God had saved the people of Israel, how God had brought them out of the nation of Egypt in captivity. He had heard about how God had ordered and orchestrated all that they were going in and giving them the benefits that God had promised to the patriarchs before. He knew of God's grace. He knew that one day the Messiah would come. He was taught about the Messiah. He heard of the forerunner that would come prior to the Messiah. He knew of what Isaiah's prophecy said. He had been taught that, that a life of obedience followed as the reflective testimony of those who truly knew God and had a relationship with God. That the outworking of their life would be one of obedience to the things of God. Obedience out of a heart of gratitude, out of a heart of fear for God, out of a reverence for a holy God, they would walk in obedience to God. And he was now, through Luke's letter, having all of those things that he had been instructed in solidified in his own heart and mind in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And the outworking of all that he is hearing about certainly would be ringing in his ears as he turned from one parchment to another to read the words of his friend for the first time. And as he hears the work and ministry of Jesus Christ, and as he sees what is happening in the lives of those people who had believed upon Jesus he is riveted in his own heart and mind in what he's seeing. 
those whom he's reading about, those whom he is seeing, they, they weren't like the rest who were just the religious group of Israel. These people were different. Their lives were different. Why? Why they did what they did was motivated by something completely different as to why the others did what they did. Why the religious elite did what they did with the motivation behind it was completely different. It may have looked similar on the outside, but it was wholly motivated from a different source. And so they were all together different in their being. And Theophilus is seeing all of this unfold as he's reading. He's looking at the words that Luke put on the parchment paper for him to read in this detailed account. And along with us, as we have been going through it, I'm sure Theophilus is riveted by the scene that has just taken place in chapter 7 as we have it in our Scriptures. We remember it, Simon the Pharisee, one of the religious elite has just had Jesus to his home for a meal. It wasn't uncommon for religious leaders to have itinerant teachers, those who traveled from place to place who were teaching in the synagogues over to greet them, to have a, a meal with them as they would talk over religious topics. And so this is not an unusual occurrence as we saw it here in Luke chapter 7, beginning in verse 36. But what is unusual about that entire occurrence, as we saw it last Lord's Day in our study, was one of the others who had come to see Jesus. It's not uncommon for Simon, the religious elite Pharisee, to have Jesus over, but was what was somewhat uncommon was this other person who was there to see Jesus. Of course, it was that woman that Simon identified as a sinner. This woman who was not of the acceptable kind. She, according to the definition given to her and placed upon her by the religious elite, was that she was just a sinner. She was the worst kind of sinner. She was one of those who flaunted her sin in open. She was possibly, quite possibly, a prostitute. She had come to see Jesus. Why? Because at some point in the ministry of Jesus, at some point as Jesus was making his way from town to town and village to village, at some point in one of those moments, she had come to know Jesus as her Savior. At some point, she had repented of her sin. She had confessed her sin before God, repented of her sin, placed faith in Jesus Christ, and she was a truly saved person by grace through faith. She had heard the message of saving grace in Jesus Christ. She had repented of her sin. Now here she is as part of this entourage that's going through these places as a new child of the King. And she wants to, to see Jesus. She comes out of love for Jesus. We noted last time the striking contrast between how she acted and how Simon acted. What she did and how Simon refused 
to do anything toward Jesus. It was striking. Simon, of course, had self-confidence that he was already right with God. Simon was one of those who would have said, listen, we are of Abraham. We are the children of Abraham, like they said that Jesus recorded for us in John's Gospel. Simon would have been one of those that his own efforts at keeping the law, while not perfect, certainly they wouldn't have said they were perfect, but they would have certainly said that while I keep the law, I am sufficient. It is satisfactory enough in what I have done that God would accept me. That's how most were taught. That's how they thought about religious life. If you were just trying, then you were good enough. If you were just doing good things, then and you were described by the outer crowd as someone who was a good person, then you were good enough. God would accept you. No need for repentance. No need for faith. No need for those things that John called for in his preaching. No need for that kind of stuff. No, you didn't need to follow Jesus, even though John pointed to him and said, there's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Don't worry about following Jesus. Just as long as you're good enough in your life, you're okay. So Simon does nothing for Jesus. Doesn't even extend the basics of common courtesies in that time. And yet here's this woman, she lavishes Jesus with her love. And it's reflected in how she acts towards Jesus. Her sins have been forgiven. And so, as Jesus concludes with Simon, she loves much. In other words, the way she loves Jesus is a clear indication that her sins have been forgiven, as Jesus clearly indicates in the text. Your sins, verse 48, have been forgiven. That's a perfect tense verb, just to give you a little English grammar. That means it happened in the past and has ongoing results into the everlasting future. Jesus wasn't saying in that moment, hey, right now your sins are forgiven. He's indicating to all who are listening, including Simon, who thinks his sins are forgiven, but they haven't been forgiven at all. Listen, she's had her sins forgiven already, and this is why she's doing what she's doing. And so Jesus says to her, you're at peace with God. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. And then... Then, I don't know what kind of electronic device you may be using for your Bible, or if you have an actual text that's sitting before you, but right there in the white spaces between what we know to be verse 50 of chapter 7 and verse 1 of chapter 8, there is some kind of time passage that takes place. We know that because of the first words of chapter 8, soon afterwards, soon afterwards. Soon afterwards, what? Soon afterwards, soon after this moment that Jesus was in this place with Simon and this woman comes in, soon after this all took place, we're not given how long was there, maybe a day, maybe a week, we're not sure, it doesn't tell us, but soon afterwards he began, who? Jesus began going from one city and village to another, proclaiming and preaching the kingdom of God. 
This was the ministry of Jesus Christ. This is what Jesus did. Jesus' ministry in Galilee was filled with a constant barrage of both people and Him accomplishing the attesting signs that were proving to all who knew the Old Testament and the prophecies of old who He actually was. God in His graciousness had given attesting signs and miracles that proved Jesus was exactly who He said He was. Jesus even says in John chapter 5 to the Pharisees, listen, you read the Scriptures because you think that in them is eternal life, and yet it is those that speak of Me. He was constantly speaking and doing miracles to graciously accommodate the fallen skepticism of our human heart. God didn't have to do that. God could have just sent Jesus and and had His ministry go on. He could have only preached. He could have never done a miracle. And all of us would still be culpable before God to believe in Jesus Christ. And yet here we are and we read the Scriptures and we look through the Gospels and we hear the Old Testament prophecies and we see the fulfillment in Jesus Christ and we see what Jesus has done and God in His graciousness has accommodated our fallen skepticism by saying, really, is that really so? Jesus accomplishes all these miracles. And as He goes about, whole towns would empty just to hear what He had to say see what He would do. Most were just curious tire kickers. That's what I I call those who who might come to the church and check it out. They just want to see what's going on inside. They're they're like people on a used car lot going around looking at cars, kicking the tires, see if it's a good car. That's how most in the crowd were. I don't think it's any shock to us that Jesus would say, as He said in the Sermon on the Mount, few, the road is narrow, and few there are who find it. Listen, the way to glory is filled with the few, not the many. And so most were just curious. They really weren't interested in His message. They really weren't interested in the truth because His message was always calling for action. It was always calling upon them to make a decision. You must make a choice. You're at the Y in the road. There is no middle road. You have to choose one way or another. That's what happens when the truth is spoken. A decision is to be made. Jesus was always calling people for a decision. Are you going to believe or are you going to reject? There's no middle ground Everywhere Jesus goes, He's preaching and proclaiming one thing. You notice here in verse 1, He's preaching and proclaiming the kingdom of God. This was His message. Literally, He's proclaiming the good news. That's the original. He's proclaiming the good news. Sometimes... When we read these things in Scripture and we read these translations that talk about these things and, and, and they're right, the kingdom of God, we, we get our minds confused at what specifically does that mean when he's talking about the kingdom of God? What is that concept? What's that idea that he's meaning here? And over the centuries, there have been all kinds of confusion about what Jesus means by that when he says that. But I don't think it's that difficult really to understand 
fact, go for a moment back to Matthew's Gospel. Go back to Matthew chapter 19 for a moment. Matthew chapter 19, verse 16, Jesus Christ has a lesson for this one who comes to Him. It says, Teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may obtain eternal life? Here is a young man who's very wealthy, who wants to gain for himself, put on his resume that he too has eternal life. And Jesus says to him, why are you asking me about what is good? This is kind of a penetrating question because Jesus says there's only one who is good. And intimating, listen, if you if you recognize me to be good, there's only one who is good, and that is God alone. And are you recognizing me as God? I mean, that's the idea behind this. But, Jesus says, if you wish to enter into life, keep the commandments. Jesus now is, is hitting at the heart of the issue, right? If, if you want to gain eternal life through your own efforts, then you better do it this way. You need to keep the commandments. So he said to him, which ones? Which ones? Jesus says, well, you should not commit murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You should not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, all these things I have kept. What arrogance. What am I still lacking? Jesus says, well, okay, if you wish to be complete, Go and sell all your possessions, give it to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. Come follow me. See, the point of that very reality right there isn't, hey, go sell all your possessions and get rid of everything you have. Jesus is saying, listen, you have to have a new allegiance. And right now your allegiance is on the things you own, the stuff you have. But your allegiance needs to go to me. I need to be your allegiance. You need to come follow me. You need to turn your back and your hold upon all of that. And you need to follow me. I need to be the guy. Verse 22, when the Young man heard this statement. He went away grieving. Why? Because he was the one who owned much property. Now this is what I'm getting at here in verse 23. That's just all preliminary to set the stage for us to understand exactly what Jesus means in Luke chapter 8 by kingdom of God. Jesus said to his disciples, Truly, truly, I say to you, it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I say to you, it's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Now, Jesus, right there in just those two sentences, equates the kingdom of heaven with the kingdom of God. They are both the same thing. You say, well, that doesn't answer our question, Pastor. That's nice. We see that, but that doesn't answer our question. You're right, so I'm going to answer it. Notice verse 25. And when the disciples heard this, they were very astonished and said, then who can be what? Saved. What is the kingdom of God? It is the kingdom of salvation. The kingdom of heaven is the kingdom of salvation. 
So Jesus is using the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God simultaneously, and the kingdom of heaven is equated with those two things, or the kingdom of salvation, or salvation itself, or being saved, is equated with both of those things. So entering the kingdom of heaven and entering the kingdom of God is equal with being saved. In other words, the disciples understood just what Jesus was referring to, and they state it as it is in verse 25 of Matthew 19. It is being saved. Now go back to Luke chapter 8. Jesus is going about proclaiming and preaching the kingdom of God. What is that? What is he proclaiming? He is proclaiming and preaching the gospel of salvation. This is what Jesus preached. He preached the truth concerning himself, concerning faith in him, that your sins must be forgiven, that you must believe upon Jesus Christ, or there is no salvation. That's what Jesus preached. He was preaching the kingdom of God. That's what it means. Preaching salvation. He wasn't talking about some social change. He wasn't going about saying, hey, listen, we got to really take hold of our government and change our government and moralize the government because when we moralize the government and moralize the local government and the state government and the federal government and the world government, when we do all of that, then we'll really find salvation. He wasn't preaching any of that. He wasn't preaching Christian nationalism that we hear so many preaching today as if we bring about the kingdom of God in some kind of way here and now. We transform governments and set up a kingdom on this earth. No, he wasn't preaching that. He was preaching the life-saving truth of repentance and faith for the forgiveness of sins. That's the only way into eternal life. There is no other way. That was Jesus' message. And it says that 12 were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and sicknesses, Mary, who was called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, Joanna, the wife of Susa, Herod's steward, and Susanna, and many others and many others. The twelve are now with him. Remember, he's been gathering them for some time. He has been calling them to himself, the twelve who would be, as we know, as apostles. Now they are all with him. And several others are with him as well, of which three are named here. And they're all women. There was a woman that was in Simon's house that was loving Jesus for how she was doing, what she was doing to Jesus. And here we are again, three women named in the Scriptures in the same way. I find it interesting that while the rabbis had no interest in women in the sense that they believed women couldn't learn. That was what rabbis believed in the ancient times. Women couldn't learn, so women were the outcasts in that way. Jesus does just the opposite. Say, why? Why? Because his ministry was to come and to seek that which is lost. 
His ministry wasn't simply to come and seek men. His ministry was to come and seek that which is lost, of which there is both men and women. So that means both male and female are part of the kingdom of God. For all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. This isn't what Islam teaches. Islam teaches that when they go to heaven in some kind of blaze of glory, they get their 70 virgins to themselves. It's kind of hard for a woman to do, isn't it? No, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All must repent of their sin if they are to be saved. In other words, the gospel is universal. Universal in the sense that it's for all people, all kinds of people, but it is also exclusive in that it is only for those who believe. If you don't believe the gospel, you will never be saved. And so Jesus has women who are part of his ministry. And three of them are named here. Don't get me wrong, I'm not intimating anything here that women ought to be pastors in the church. I'm not saying that. I'm just simply saying that God in his kingdom has women who are part of his ministry. They've been brought into the kingdom as well. And he names three of them here. Mary, who was called Magdalene, who, from whom seven demons were gone out. And Joanna, the wife of Susa, Herod's steward, and Susanna. Mary, of course, had a tragic life. Some, somewhere in her life, demons had taken hold of her. Seven demons had possessed her. Horrific, horrific way in which she was to live, and Jesus had freed her from all of those things. You have Joanna, who is named here, who would have been a, a pretty, would have had a pretty easy life because she was living in the palace. She was the the wife of the steward of Herod, who was a, a very high position. He would have either been the caretaker for for uh, the palace itself, or he would have been the one who took care of the finances for Herod. So that was a pretty high position. So he was a trusted person by Herod, as well as he would have been well cared for under Herod. And so Joanna would have been the beneficiary of all of that care. And so here you have Mary Magdalene from one side of the tracks, Joanna who was probably from the other side of the track, so to speak. And then it mentions Susanna here in verse 3. By the way, this is the only place Susanna is mentioned, and this is all that is mentioned, her name. We don't know her other than her name. We know nothing about her other than that she is mentioned here with these two other women. And maybe it was that you had... Mary on one side of the tracks and Joanna on the other side and Susanna was somewhere in the middle. We're not sure about all of that. And then, of course, you have all these unnamed others and many others, verse 3 says. So, they all are, notice, contributing 
many others who were contributing. It's not simply isolating the many others as the ones who were contributing, but Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Susanna, they're all, with, along with these others, they are all contributing to the ministry of Jesus as he travels from town to town, village to village, in order to preach and proclaim salvation. And all of that is very interesting to me as it falls on the heels in Luke's detailed accounting of the history of how things were going as he shows us in this previous passage in Luke chapter 7 of this woman who comes to see Jesus and the conclusion about her life concerning it is this, that she is forgiven much and because she's forgiven much, she loves much. And the very next thing that's talked about is these three women and these others contributing to the ministry of Jesus Christ. And I believe here we have another example of the children of wisdom on display. And I want us to to see here no less than six outworkings. Six outworkings in the lives of those who understand that they are forgiven much. Six outworkings in the life of the true believer. These are reflections in the life of the true believer. Those who are forgiven much, number one, follow Jesus. Those who are forgiven much, seems rather obvious, they follow Jesus. Right? Jesus is going from city to city, town to town, and all of these are going with him. They are following Jesus. It seems rather redundant. It seems rather obvious. If we love something, then we want to be with that something, isn't it? I mean, that's the reality of life. If we love something, we spend time with that something. It really doesn't matter what it is. Our level of love is reflected in our desire and fulfillment of being with whatever it is we love. If you love football, then you are watching football all the time. Much to the demise of some other relationships that you may have in your life. If you love something else, it may contribute to the demise of other things in your life. Why? Because you're spending time with the thing you love. I remember when I was in seminary years ago, one story always was told in seminary about those who were in seminary and all the time it took to read the books you had to read and to study the things you had to study and to write the papers you had to write and all the hours that it took and and you were spending so much time with all of that that you you cannot do that to the demise of the relationship in the home that you have particularly with your wife we were challenged with that continuously and they would say they, they had heard of a seminarian who came home one day and all of his books were sitting on his bed and a note said, you love these more than me, have at it. If we love something, we want to be with that something and this is never more true than in our love for Jesus Christ, beloved. Following Jesus is the outworking of obedience to Jesus and the desire to be with Him in what He is doing. 
You say, well, what does that entail, Pastor? What does that look like? Well, we can make an unending list, I'm sure, if we wanted to just go around the room and ask for suggestions, but it means no less than two actions being revealed right here in these believers. One is they were desiring to hear Jesus, and so they went where Jesus went. They wanted to hear Him. He was going from village to village, city to city, proclaiming and preaching, and they were with Him. They wanted to hear Jesus. When Jesus was speaking, they wanted to hear it. And secondly, they were showing their faith in Him by how they were living. So they wanted to hear Jesus, and what they heard from Jesus, they wanted to have reflected in how they were living. In other words, their testimony of their life was reflective of what they were hearing and reflective of their love for Him. Notice what it says. They were with Him. The twelve were with Him and some women and many others. They were with Him. That isn't simply, by the way, a proximity indicator for us to go, oh, they were close in proximity to Jesus. No, rather it's telling us that they were with Him with purpose. They weren't just with Him out of curiosity like many of the others. These were with Him with purpose. Jesus was going about proclaiming and preaching the gospel. He was going about telling of the good news of salvation. He was confronting sin. He was confronting error, the error of the most religious elite throughout the town. Every town would have known and had some of these. And he's showing compassion to the people. He's carrying out his ministry of his love for the people, and they are carrying out their ministry of love for Jesus Christ. They wanted to hear what He was saying. They wanted to learn from Him. They were being equipped for life and for godliness. They were hanging on every word that proceeded out of His mouth. For them, the words of God were their food. What Jesus said was life for them, and so they wanted to be with Jesus no matter what. And so they couldn't get enough of the truth. Now I want us to think about it. Think about it here as we think about this first principle and tie it to the second. Not only were they with Jesus as He was preaching and as He was teaching and proclaiming the truth of the gospel But you notice it was voluntary. Those who have been forgiven much follow Jesus. Those who have been forgiven much follow voluntarily with Jesus. They were with Him. You notice that it doesn't say that Jesus was dragging them along. It doesn't say anywhere to us in any text that I've ever read that Jesus was continually reminding them that, hey, listen, we're going to this next place. Remember, set your schedule straight. You've got to be with me. He wasn't dragging them along. It isn't as if Jesus had to guilt them into coming onto the next town. It wasn't because of some exciting moment or that they saw in themselves some way in which they were part of the inside group. 
No, they weren't Jesus groupies as many in the crowd were, as you see a lot today around larger evangelicalism where you follow the celebrity preacher, you follow the guy who has a large following. It's kind of an undercurrent subculture within evangelicalism thinking that if I'm part of that crowd, then I'm somebody. That's not these believers. They just want to be with Jesus. They want to hear Jesus. And so what do they do? They just go voluntarily. Man, I can't get enough of Jesus. I just want, when Jesus is speaking truth, when the word of truth is being spoken, I just want to be there. Jesus is going, I'm going to be there. Why? Because I love Jesus. I've been forgiven so much. I, I just want to be with Jesus. Jesus has given me life. He's given me everything I have. So I I just want to be with Jesus. So when Jesus is opening his mouth, they are there to hear it. They want to hear it. Why? Because they love Jesus. They just love Jesus. They love the truth. And so they follow Jesus and they follow him voluntarily. It's a voluntary compulsion. There's no thought of them gaining some kind of righteousness through this activity. There's no sense in them in which they think they're earning some kind of righteousness because they're close to Jesus. No, they just love Jesus. And so they go voluntarily. And so when we understand what we have been forgiven, beloved, we not only follow Jesus, we follow him voluntarily. Nobody has to guilt us into following Jesus. Nobody has to guilt us into hearing the truth. You just go because you love Jesus. Notice what it also says in verse 3. That if we've been forgiven much, we not only follow Jesus and follow Him voluntarily, but we are sacrificial. We're sacrificial. And they were contributing of, to their support out of their private means. In ancient days, as in our days, there's a cost. There's a cost to doing anything. There's a cost. It may be energy that it costs you out of yourself. It may be your time that it costs you because you have to give up time at something else to do it. It may be some kind of monetary cost as we see even here, but it doesn't matter. There is a cost to it all. And for Jesus to carry out his ministry, even though it was a short ministry, some three years, there was a cost, especially taking with him to town to town and village to village, an entourage of people that were part of those whom he had saved. And so for that to happen, there would need to be personal sacrifice on behalf of those who were following him. And that sacrifice from all is both personal and public personal and public. I'm going to talk about this a little more in in just a moment, but I just want to highlight it. It would be personal in that you would have to give of yourself. That's personal sacrifice. You give of yourself. You you invest yourself in it. This isn't something that, that, that costs you monetarily, potentially. It certainly may cost you time, but it is you investing yourself in it. Listen, if you're going to follow Jesus, if you're going to listen to Jesus voluntarily, then you have to be personally invested in it. There's a personal sacrifice that takes place in order to go and be with Jesus. 
Joanna, who, who was the wife of the steward of Herod, would have had to leave that place. She would have had to leave the palace where her husband worked. We're not told here in this text whether he was a believer also. He may have been. Because Matthew chapter 14, verse 1 says that Herod came to ask his servants about Jesus. Susa was one of his servants. So some of them were surely believers. Was Joanna's husband? We're not told. So for her to follow with Jesus would have been a personal sacrifice. She was giving of herself, just as the others were. And so the sacrifice was an outworking of their love for Jesus. And so it was number four, what I already said about it being public and personal, but it was personal and a public sacrifice. That's number four. You say, how so? Well, it was personal, not only in giving of themselves, but personal by way of contributing to the support of others by their private means, verse 3 says. It's interesting that the translators put it that way. Because the grammar in the original language, I believe, puts the emphasis more on the giving of themselves than it does of the giving of something that they have. In other words, in the likeness of the Macedonians in 1 Corinthians, or 2 Corinthians chapter 8, where Paul is collecting a giving from the Macedonian believers and challenging the Corinthian believers to give in the same way, he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 that they gave not just out of their poverty, but they gave themselves. And so they were, they were giving in that personal way. They were giving publicly. They were giving of themselves. This is the testimony, beloved, of those who understand how that much they have been forgiven. When you are forgiven much, you follow Jesus. You follow Him voluntarily. You follow Him sacrificially. You follow Him in that sacrifice which is both personal and it's public. Those who understand what they have been forgiven, number five, follow continually. Continually. Notice... Verse 5 says, and they were contributing to the support of others out of their private means. Luke uses grammar here that indicates to us that what they did, they did not stop doing. It was continual. They kept on ministering to others through their own means. That just simply tells us it was nonstop. And again, it wasn't under compulsion. It wasn't under some guilt trip in which they give. It wasn't in some sense in which someone came along with them and put the screws down upon them and said, hey, listen, Joanna, you got means. Hey, Mary, you, you know, you may not have a lot, but you got something. We don't know the means of Susanna. It wasn't out of any guilt trip that they were giving. They just gave voluntarily for the benefit of others so that Christ would be exalted, so that Christ would be served, so that the message of Christ would be heard. They just gave. He's lavished it out so that these who were going along, so that Jesus and those who were with him would be cared for throughout the ministry. And that tells us that those who understand what they have been forgiven as they love much, number six, they show themselves to be faithful. Faithful. They show themselves to be faithful. You know what faithful means? 
reliable. That's what it means. That's what it means when you boil it all down. It means reliable. We come to God and we pray to God. Why? We're dependent upon God, right? We understand that. But we come with the big reason because God is faithful. That's His nature. That's His character. He is utterly and completely reliable. If He wasn't reliable, if we could not trust Him to do what He says He's going to do, to to carry out the very words that He said, then we would not come to Him at all because it would be willy-nilly. Who knows whether God's going to do what He said He's going to do? Why do we trust Him for salvation if we have no hope that it will happen? No, God is faithful. He is reliable. We can trust Him, and that trust is proven through the very character of His faithfulness. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 9 and 10 says this, Know therefore that the Lord your God, He is God, the faithful God who keeps His covenant and His loving kindness to a thousand generations with those who love Him and keep His commandments. But He repays those who hate Him with to their faces to destroy them. He will not delay with Him who hates Him. He will repay Him to His face. God is as faithful in His salvation as He is in His condemnation. There will be no escaping. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 9, God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. You know what Paul's saying to the Corinthian believers? Listen, believers, don't ever doubt your salvation when you are in Christ. You can never get out of Christ. God is faithful. If He called you into Christ, and He did that, by the way, as we'll see tonight in some ways, and even farther in our Ephesians study, He called you before the foundation of the world to be in Christ. If He called you in Christ, there was no way for you to get in without that. God called you into Christ, there's no way you can get out of it. So when it comes to living out our faith, we are called to be faithful called to reflect the very nature and character of God who lives within us, the Spirit of Christ who lives within us, the Holy Spirit, we are to be faithful. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, verses 1 and 2, let a man regard us in this manner, as servants of Christ, stewards of the mysteries of God, and in this case, moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found faithful. That's what we're called to. Faithfulness. Faithfulness. And so here in Luke chapter 8, verses 1 and 3, before we enter into this reality where Jesus Christ delineates in the parable of the sowers, the very ones that bear fruit and those that do not bear fruit, we have this little, almost parenthetical little introduction that we go, wow, there's nothing really there, and yet there's so much there. Another example right here, following on the heels of of chapter 7, verse 36 to 50, and those who love much. And when we understand it, where does it take us? It takes us all the way to the cross of Jesus Christ, upon whom the debt is paid. takes us all the way to the feet of Jesus. We realize that nothing to do with us and everything to do with Him. 
When we understand how much we've been forgiven, we love much and we follow Jesus. We follow Jesus. We love to hear the truth. And we live out that life loving Him, hearing the truth, voluntarily, sacrificially, continually, personally, and reliably do we follow Him. It's all about Jesus. It's not about us. We follow Him not because we think somehow we believe in ourselves in doing the following of Jesus in obedience to Christ that somehow we and ourselves can cancel out a sin debt that we have. No, but because Jesus has canceled out the sin debt. Because Jesus has forgiven our sins. So we love Him because He first loved us and gave Himself for us. He saved us. He equipped us. He gave us everything we need for life and godliness. He equipped us to love His body, the church. And so we serve the church with gratitude. That's what it means to love much. That's the children of wisdom living out what they believe. Just want to be with Jesus. Be with whatever Jesus is doing. Contribute to the ministry of Jesus voluntarily, sacrificially, and reliably follow Jesus. I trust that that's your heart this morning. I trust that as you sit here this morning, you think about these things, and you think about what you learned last week, and you sit and you look at these few people, that your name is there in that midst as you follow Jesus. That your understanding of what you've been forgiven much flows out in how you love our Savior. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that we have heard from you that our hearts are challenged in the right sense of that word, not because of some guilt reality in us whereby we're moved in a direction because we don't want to feel that guilt anymore, but Lord, that we're moved in obedience to you because we love you much, because we understand what we've been forgiven. For there is nothing in us that could keep us from you if you have drawn us to yourself because you have paid it all. Not one sin past, present, or even future, Lord, that is not taken care of on the cross. You have paid it all. And we have been forgiven so much. I trust that our hearts are drawn out of that understanding and gratitude to you, to follow you, to hear you, to sacrifice for you, to just love your body because we love you. 
Lord, thank you for this this morning. Thank you for the challenge it is to even my own heart. Move upon us by your Spirit, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.